This is episode 76 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 76 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we chat with Archbishop Anthony Fisher, the ordinary of the Archdiocese of Sydney, Australia. We chat about how he discerned his vocation as a Dominican friar, how his training as an ethicist helped him in his pastoral responsibilities in the face of the global pandemic, and where he sees signs of hope for the future of the church in the modern world. Let's sit down together for this delightful conversation. Well, Your Grace, Archbishop Anthony Fisher, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you do your studies? Kind of those sorts of things. Okay. I, I grew up in Sydney, so I'm actually back in my hometown now as Archbishop. Uh, I was one of five children. I went to four different Catholic schools and then to a secular university, the University of Sydney, where I did history and law, practiced briefly as a lawyer went backpacking around the world to make up my mind about my vocation and joined the Dominican Order in Melbourne, Australia. I studied down there in Melbourne and then, after I was ordained a priest, went to Oxford to do my doctorate in bioethics. So I've studied in a few different cities around the world at yeah. different times. Uh, came back to be a lecturer in, in moral theology and bioethics at the Catholic University and then to set up the John Paul Institute for Marriage and the Family in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, I've lectured in a few other places too. And, of course, I'm a Catholic priest, so along along the way I was helping out in parishes and doing the work of a priest as well as the, the work of a, a Catholic academic. Then in 2003, uh, Pope John Paul did a terrible thing. <laughs> he, <laughs> he decided I should be an assistant bishop, an auxiliary bishop in Sydney, uh, to uh, Cardinal Pell, who was the uh, Archbishop in Sydney. I went from there, uh, Pope Benedict appointed me to be Bishop of Parramatta, which is a diocese just outside, a suburban diocese of Sydney. And then uh, Pope Francis made me Archbishop of Sydney, so I came back there uh, seven years ago. It's where most of my family still are in Sydney. Uh, my mum died earlier this year, and my dad's probably going to follow her soon. But I, I have my brothers and sisters uh, mostly in Sydney, so that's great to be home for lots of reasons. Is the prophet accepted in his own land? <laughs> well, that's interesting. Just uh, back in July, I gave the, the retreat to all the bishops of the United States and in, was held in San Diego, and, uh, and they were very generous in their comments, but also twice they stood up and clapped, standing ovation. I said to them, brothers, this would never happen in Australia. <laughs> and they said, a prophet is not, not appreciated in his own town. So. <laughs> you mentioned that you took a backpacking trip to kind of, in some ways, find yourself, but also to listen. Yep. Um, 
How did you discern the vocation to the Dominicans? What drew you to the Order of Preachers? Well, I was already thinking of them, though I'd been schooled by the Jesuits and I'd been in a in a secular diocesan parish. Uh, I'd, I suppose the Jesuits had, had shown me the importance of uh, an intelligent faith, uh, an educated faith, and so that's something they would have in common with the Dominicans, uh, a passion for that, and, and that excited me. I was a... Uh, a schoolboy debater. I loved public speaking, and when I learnt that there was an order of preachers whose whose who's first and primary work was to preach, I thought, well, that could be a a good place to put that particular gift uh, and enthusiasm. Uh, also, the Dominicans are a semi-monastic order, so we we live together and pray together and eat together and study together, and. I thought that would be a help to me. Uh, the Jesuits are very spiritually independent. They're trained to, to not have to rely on anyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas the more monastic orders, like the Dominicans, you do expect your brothers to encourage and push you. And if you don't turn up to prayers in the morning, they'll tell you. In yeah. fact, I remember once getting a map delivered underneath my door to show me exactly where the choir was in case I'd forgotten. <laughs> it's the kind of encouragement that you get in, in, in monasteries and priories and friaries. So I, uh, I knew enough about myself to know that would be good for me, mm-hmm. and, and, and it was, certainly. Uh, so I, I was still at this stage when I was backpacking around Europe I had many different options. I was uh, a lawyer and, and quite enjoyed my life as a lawyer and the social life that I had alongside that. Uh, but this question kept erupting in my heart about shouldn't I be a priest and isn't that where I would make the most of myself with God and, and do the most I could for the world under God's grace. And uh, so I did ultimately take the plunge and ask the Dominicans if they'd let me in. And uh, I would say within three or four days, I was absolutely convinced this was the right place for me. It just felt, seemed completely right for me. And uh, all these years later, I still think that's right, (laughs) even if the Pope kind of messed things up a bit by making me a bishop as well. Well, I can't help but notice, of course, you continue to wear your Dominican habit, uh, your your weapon at your side, your rosary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've added the pectoral cross. That's right. Um, are there aspects of your of your daily life or of your your ongoing kind of life that incorporate parts of your Dominican identity? Yes. So when uh, Pope John Paul made me a bishop, he said in the mandate. Uh, that I should continue to uh, fulfil as much of my religious commitment as was consistent with my new state as a bishop. So I, for instance, celebrate all the Dominican feast days Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to what I pray and and what masses I offer. I still pray the rosary. I still love St Thomas Aquinas and and the great saints of the order as uh, very much as my family uh, saints and uh, as inspiration for me intellectually in other ways. Uh, I visit my my brothers quite regularly, and we also have the uh, Dominican sisters in Australia, including the the fastest growing religious order in Australia is the same 
order is the fastest growing religious order in the United States, and that's the Nashville Dominican Sisters. Sure. 20 Australian girls have now joined the Nashville Dominican Sisters. Wow. And, and And a good many of those have stayed. And when their formation's complete, they come back to Australia. So we now have two convents of, of Nashville Dominicans. Wow. Uh, in Australia, and they're great friends to me too. So both the, the, the Friars and the Sisters are a continuing part of my life. Yeah, that's fantastic. We have a mutual friend, Father Manez, okay. who was at St. Albert Priory when I was there uh-huh. with the Dominicans. Very so. good. And I know he preached the gospel during World Youth Day. That's right, yes. <laughs> I was organising World Youth Day, so I was a little bit biased in, in choosing <laughs> one. And he had been my first postulant when I was master of the postulants, and then he was the first student I had when I was master of students in the Dominicans after he'd come back from his novitiate in in the western province of the Dominicans here. Well, you mentioned that you're, by training, an ethicist. Uh, You wrote your dissertation at Oxford on the just allocation of healthcare resources. Now, of course, these past two years, the global pandemic has raised many ethical questions about limited healthcare resources, vaccine mandates, and even the freedom to gather for worship. Now, how have you, as both a trained ethicist and a shepherd of souls, navigated these past few years? Well, you're quite right. It has raised many issues, and many of them are issues not just in time of pandemic. It's just that the pandemic's really highlighted them focused our attention on them. For instance, my thesis was injustice and the allocation of healthcare. We know that if if you're in certain parts of the world, you'll get almost nothing when a, a COVID pandemic comes. Mm-hmm. There'll be no vaccines for you. Uh, there'll be possibly not even masks or or education in how in hygiene or or the things you might need to keep yourself st- safe uh, and to keep particularly because we know this this particular disease focused its its vicious attention on the elderly, mm-hmm. uh, you wouldn't even get the education how to keep your elderly people safe. Uh, whereas in other parts of the world, we will get all those things. There's a lot of controversy uh, now, and there was all along about how helpful any of those things actually were. Uh, and uh, But from the best we knew at the time, uh, and the best, best science we had at the time, those were some things that would help. And you'd really want everyone to have access to those things if possible, to have the vaccines and the masks and the education in, in how to keep yourself and and your, uh, our elderly people safe. So there's one big question because, of course, that's true not just in pandemic time but all the time, that, that depending on where you live in the world, you may or may not, just by accident of birth, have access to the most basic kinds of health care and, and, and knowledge about, about health. And if by bad luck you're in the wrong place, who knows what, what, how you'll survive some of those things that, that come your way in life. Then there were many questions around public health measures, such as bans on public gatherings, and that included gatherings in churches, um, as well as for entertainments and for other reasons. And that, that is very hard on people of faith. And I, I must say, I think public health officials often did not appreciate that around the world. They, they treat going to church as going to an entertainment. And I don't want to diminish the importance of entertainments, by the way, either. Right. Uh, we need those things in our lives. But, but there's more to going to church than just going to a concert. Uh, and 
there's more to people's health than just their physical health. Their, their emotional and spiritual health matter very much too. And so I think that, that sometimes public health officials close down some gatherings and places, uh, such as places of worship, without quite considering all those sides to that, that decision. But that said, there are times throughout history when we as a church have accepted that this is the best thing for people's continued survival. And so during the Spanish flu, uh, all around the world, our churches were closed 100 years ago uh, at the end of the First World War when when that particular pandemic went around the world. Uh, masses were stopped. What they did to begin with was they held them outside, then they held them with smaller groups and eventually they stopped them altogether. During the bubonic plague, again and again, we closed the churches to keep people safe. So this is not out of the question. Sometimes we do have to worship at home and do our best uh, because of public safety. The same happens during wartime, of course, when people are, are told to keep safe by keeping near air raid shelters and keeping at home. Uh it's not ideal. We make the best of it. It was a great grace, I think, that we had the possibility of live streaming and those ways of being connected with worship that no previous generation before ours did have. So mm-hmm. so uh, while we know that's very much second best uh, because you're not receiving the sacrament and you're not uh, genuinely gathering as a community... Uh, it's still better than nothing and uh, that we had some other options was a help for us. There are other sides again to this, like mandating vaccinations. The The Vatican was very clear in its teaching that uh, even though there are some ethical concerns around the way the vaccines are manufactured, that people could use them honestly saying it's by in no sense their intention that they be produced in this in this way, uh, that the, the the fetal cells that are used in the culture on which the vaccine, some of the vaccines were grown, came from from an aborted child in the 1970s. Well, you could honestly say, I have no part of that abortion. I would never want that repeated. Uh, I uh, would be doing everything I can to lobby for uh, purer alternatives. And so, yes, someone can use that vaccine and that's on the ordinary Catholic principles of cooperation in evil and benefiting or not from someone else's wrongdoing. Uh, Do you have an absolute duty to use the vaccine, even if you may use the vaccine? Now, that's more complex because I would say uh, the... You have to look at your own health and protect your own health. You also have to protect the health of those you engage with. Like if you had elderly parents at home, you might feel a greater responsibility to protect your own health because you don't want to bring COVID home and give it to your elderly parents who might then die from it. If you're a nurse in a hospital and you're dealing with already very sick people, you don't want to be giving them COVID. So people... In, in particular jobs or situations in life, probably had a stronger duty to consider vaccination than others who are essentially just considering their own health um, and maybe the few that the people they live with or they're, they're, they're gathering with from time to time. Uh, and I think the, the more vulnerable you are and the more you're interacting with other vulnerable people, 
the greater the duty would be to do whatever you can to to uh, to avoid getting COVID and transmitting COVID to others. Now, then there's all sorts of calculations we have to make. Does the vaccine help very much? How much did it actually stop the transmission? Um, the same issue arises with masks and with gatherings and so on. Uh, and those are hard calculations and most of, most of us just go with the best public health advice, the best medical advice that we can get, uh, knowing that they're not infallible uh, and that some of these things are quite uh, contested. Mm-hmm. Now, you've also been at the forefront of making the case against voluntary euthanasia in your home country of Australia, which has been an unfortunate task, as now I understand all Australian states have passed laws permitting it that will yep. be taking effect in the next uh, over the next year or so. Um, Here in the United States, still a minority of our states uh, have legalized assisted suicide. So we continue the fight uh, to defend the most vulnerable. What advice might you give to us in our efforts? Yes. Well, I'd say the first thing is do continue the fight. Uh, Don't accept that this is inevitable, that the march of of history or civilization is always in one direction and the, and the, the present direction is a kind of moral slide that's allowing killing. Um, the Pope recently on his return from Kazakhstan said, uh, gave euthanasia as his example of the moral decline of the West and said, uh, let's leave killing to the beasts. Uh, we, we human beings should know better. And and I'm completely with him on that. Uh, we should know better and we can do better. We can care for our sick and our dying and for those who are demoralised and feel their life has no meaning and is burdensome. We can do better by them than just uh, killing them. Uh, but it will require our investing ourselves in them and I think part of what the Catholic community and, and, and other people of goodwill have to do is offer genuine alternatives. Don't just say no to euthanasia, but to be really promoting better kinds of care for people that will make them as comfortable as possible, make their life as meaningful and make them feel as loved as possible uh, at the last part of their life. And I think very often uh, people just hear the church or Christians in general as just saying no, but they don't see that we're actually offering something better. Uh, than euthanasia in this case or, or whatever the, the particular um, question in the air is. Another side to this that I've mentioned to Americans to learn from our experiences, several of the Australian states have not only legislated for euthanasia but they've, they've imposed it on Catholic uh, aged care and health care facilities and uh, they've limited or, or taken away the right of Catholic or other uh, good health professionals to dissent from doing this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very serious matter. I think Americans by instinct would be disinclined to try and force health professionals to do this or t- Catholic health facilities to do this. But we've seen uh, mandates around uh, abortifacients and contraceptives and so on. So there are sometimes politicians or public health officials that are not very respectful of conscience. And so I'd say to be watching out uh, as people legislate these things, not only to be resisting them, but also to be resisting the 
the ideological uses of them that are trying to stop people of faith or conscience from thinking any differently. Right, yeah. This is a hard sell, though. The The idea of kind of redemptive suffering, in a way, is it's difficult. Suffering is the absolute worst evil in, in our you know, society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anything we can do to avoid that, whether that be legalizing, you know, drugs or in this case, you know, let me free through euthanasia or assisted suicide because this life is too burdensome. That's a really hard sell. I mean, it always has been, though, right? Yep. Well, I think we begin with uh, suffering is not actually the worst possible thing. Uh, there are worse things that can happen to us. I could become a monster, a brute, a, a, a cruel, uh, unloving person. That would be much worse than suffering. I could be the person causing the suffering rather than enduring the suffering. That would be much worse. Uh, there, are, there are actually worse things than suffering, and most of us know. Uh, know if you're a, a young athlete, you, you put up with a certain amount of suffering in order to achieve uh, your excellence in your in your uh, your sport. Uh, if you're a, a young mother, you put up with with endless nights of bad sleep or no sleep out of love for the little one. Uh, we all know in one way or another, uh, love for each other and love even for ourselves will in, mean a certain amount of sacrifice and a certain amount of discomfort at different times, but you endure it in good spirit because of the good that comes ultimately from from that. And I don't think we should diminish the the power and the importance of the last days, the last months of someone's life, uh, the the time that is for being reconciled with with perhaps family members or people they've not spoken to or not related well to for a time, with God likewise, the time for for reconciliation with God and getting ready for being in, in God's arms forever. Uh, the time it might be for getting your affairs in order, for for facing up to some things about yourself, uh, the the time for saying some thank yous and some goodbyes, and there is a lot that can happen in those last days and weeks, and whether we call all of that redemptive, I I think that's a pretty good word for it because uh, it's part of making us more the saints we probably should have been all along. Um, but uh, it often only happens at the end if people get the bit at the end. You you truncate that, you cut that off with uh, assisted suicide or, or euthanasia or in some other way, you may be denying a very important part of that life story uh, of, of the, the person they could have been and should have been by the end. Uh, now, not, not everybody's going to have that at the end, uh, but... but uh, I, I think we should question the view. There's nothing good that can come of the last days or weeks of of a person's life, even if it's they've got cancer, they've got some debilitating disease. It's not a thing you'd wish on yourself or on anybody you loved. Uh, but but we shouldn't diminish the good things that could still happen through that time. Uh, but of course. That's easy for me to say. I'm not dying. Right, right. <laughs> and, and so what I know is I've got to be there helping. And as a priest, I have ways of helping spiritually, pastorally. As a human being, I have ways of helping in terms of 
helping to bring meaning and love when a person's feeling lonely or, or uh, their life meaningless or burdensome. My wife and I are preparing to um, to put our our senior dog, our beloved senior dog, to sleep. He's he has cancer, but there's a fundamental difference between this act of mercy to an animal that that you know can't comprehend what's going on, just knows the pain, and doing the same for grandma. Yes, yes, and and at the very heart of this is our understanding that human beings, uniquely of all creatures are images of God with an eternal destiny. Uh, And therefore, uh, our reverence for them is of a a different order to our reverence for other created things, even though we love our dogs and we love many other things uh, about the natural order. Uh, But uh, here you're dealing with an immortal soul that has been given a lifespan by God, and we don't interfere with that. We, We do our best to support that with the human being. Also, a big difference, as you mentioned, is for a dog, all it is is pain at the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, For a human being, even if there is pain, and we do our best to relieve that, but there are other things going on too. They still have hopes and dreams and memories and aspirations, and they can make some sense, not perfect sense, but some sense of their own suffering and of the meaning of their life, Uh, and they know and have the hope if they have the gift of faith, they have the hope of a, a life beyond and uh, and know that their time here bears upon but isn't the end of the story right. uh, of the life beyond. So for the human being, that, that time of uh, the terminal time of their life uh, has a whole lot more meaning than it can have for an animal. Uh, and that's not trivialising animals for a moment. It's just no. saying they don't know those things or or have those uh, hopes or aspirations. And so for them, uh, it is often simply the, 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 the kindest way of, of minimising their, their pain. If that was all there was for a human being, you might say, well, then we should be doing the same thing to human beings. But of course, it's not all there is for a human being. We have an immortal soul. We have a life beyond and we have... Uh, our own character and the meaning we bring to life in the meantime, as we're, even as we're suffering. Yeah. I guess we'll change the subject. <laughs> A cheerier one. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, at Lodz each morning, we pray the words of Zechariah from the Gospel of Luke that God will, quote, will set us free from the hands of our enemies, free to worship him without fear. Now, religious liberty is a first freedom here in America and throughout the West. Yet the rise of the non-believing nuns is eroding this freedom in many ways, such that religious believers are often cast as fascists who must be silenced. How do we make the case in a pluralistic society that religious liberty is fundamental to our very existence, even and to the very existence of society itself? Well, I think to begin with, we have to face up to the reality this is this is very real. There are people that want to stop religion in its tracks in every field of endeavour. First, to, to privatise it and say, well, you can have it, but keep it quiet and keep it at home or keep it at church for an hour a week. But don't, don't bring it to Parliament, uh, to Congress with you. Don't bring it to your workplace. Don't bring this faith of yours to to healthcare or to whatever else you're doing in your life. Uh, 
We recently had a case in Australia just a few weeks ago where the the CEO of uh, one of our biggest football clubs was uh, forced to resign only one day after starting as the CEO because it had been revealed that he belonged to a conservative Christian church, an Anglican church, uh, and because that church was against abortion and against same-sex marriage, well, that he was part of that church, he could not be head of a football club and he was forced to resign. Now, that that kind of bigotry that says, uh, even though that has no bearing on your abilities as a, as a head of a football club, uh, that we're not going to have you in our space, we're not going to have you anywhere near us, uh, that is growing and that's very real. And I'm sure we could give hundreds of cases parallel cases of where people have suffered simply for being a Christian or for being a believer in our world in recent times because there is a kind of secularism that wants to push religion out of life altogether. There are, there are milder forms that would just say, let's live and let live. Uh, let's make a space for people of all beliefs and none. Uh, that we won't make religion compulsory, but nor will we stop someone believing and and uh, associating and speaking and living their religion. Uh, and that that's that kind of secularism I have a lot of time for. Uh, but the kind that says basically religion is dangerous, it's always homophobic, it's always transphobic, it's always hateful, it's always hurtful. And so what we've got to do is ban it from every part of life, if at all possible. Uh, well, I think that is just a kind of new bigotry and uh, a new fascism, as you put it. Uh, and we have to be very aware that that's happening and, and face that reality uh, because at many times in history, time totalitarianism has arisen bit by bit and people have kept telling themselves, oh, it won't last, it's not too bad, I could, it's not hurting me. We've got lots of reasons for not doing anything about it uh, and then it can get very bad and very hard to do anything about it. We've also got to make the positive case for why making a space for faith, for uh, religion in people's lives is good for the community. Uh, and I think you can make many good arguments. You look at the good things the faiths have done for our community, the, the schools and hospitals and welfare and a uh, thousand and one ways in which they support people in their lives, including people not just of their own faith but, but out of charity to whoever comes, uh, that they do do a great deal of good for our community, that for many people pursuing uh the good life includes pursuing God, praying, worshipping, uh, volunteering out of a religious motivation, that that is how they make the best life for themselves. And uh, if we're genuine about wanting everyone to have the chance to make the best life for themselves, well, we've got to allow the religious people to do that with the religious bit. Mm -hmm. uh, just as... If you weren't much interested in sport, you'd still see that some people like sport. Well, let's leave them the space to pursue their sport. Or if you don't like opera or music, well, sure, but let's let other people pursue opera or music. Well, at the very least, if we know that, that 
religion can do a lot of good and that for some people it's a big part of their happiness, of their flourishing. Let's leave the space for each other uh, to pursue those things if those are important to us. I think that kind of positive case we can make to people still. Uh, we're not yet so bigoted as a society, so hostile to faith. Some corners might be, but most people are not. And put to them in those very positive terms, I think most people say, yes, that's fair enough. People of faith should be allowed to pursue their faith. The last thing I'd say is you're here in America, you're still in a country where most people uh, put their hand up and say, I do believe in God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do pray sometimes. I do worship sometimes. They mightn't go as often as you'd like. They mightn't uh, you know, be a real holy Joe saying the rosary uh, every day. I wish they would. But, mm-hmm. but it, it, you can't say, oh, this is a secular society. That's too simple. Uh, most people, in fact... Uh, do believe that there's a spiritual good. They do believe in a transcendent. They do think there's more to life than just the things we can see and control. Um, and, and they do have bigger hopes for themselves and those they love, including a life beyond this one. And uh, given that we're supposed to be a democracy, that's what most people believe. Well, it would be a very strange democracy that, that then... Uh, said we're going to try and curtail or stop that. Yeah. Well, kind of related, in, uh, earlier this week you delivered the Erasmus Lecture at the invitation of the journal First Things, in which you discussed whether our Western civilization is in a pre-Christian or a post-Christian phase. Now, ever the Dominican, you instead proposed a third option, a synthesis that highlighted the challenges to and the opportunities for preaching the gospel of Christ. Now, despite the sobering realities that you shared in the form of polls and surveys, I mean, some of those numbers were just shocking, I was struck by actually the hopeful nature of your Mm. talk. Where do you find and ground your hope? Okay. Partly I start with history, and the fact is there's never been a golden age, a pure age, uh, where everybody was full of faith and totally converted all the way down and through, uh, and and we're all building the kingdom of God together. That's what we'd wish, but it's never been so. In fact, there's always been, uh, even in ages of great faith, uh, still more to be done to convert people. Uh, they're... Now, the church only recognises saints at death, uh, not any, not a minute before, because we all need work, mm-hmm. uh, and we all we all uh, still have progress to make in the spiritual life. And most of us, I think, most of the time, are actually a mixture of pagan and Christian and secular. We're infected by all three of those things, and hopefully, we're more Christian than anything else. Uh, but. Uh, we, we we are one way or another children of our own age as well. And let's not not forget that sometimes there's some good things in those other ways, those other worldviews. Like the secular world does press the importance of human rights and the importance of science and technology and the importance of of democracy and and those are things the church has actually come to be very much in favour of too. Uh, and there are other wisdoms out there that sometimes have things to teach us. You know, St Thomas Aquinas 
took a great deal from Aristotle, a pagan. Uh, uh, St. Augustine took a lot from Plato, another pagan. Uh, uh, St. Matteo Ricci took it from Confucius, another pagan. Uh, Sometimes these people still have a wisdom to offer us. And and as St. Thomas said, truth, whomever it comes from, wherever it comes from, if it's true, it's from the Holy Spirit. And so we shouldn't be afraid of or or, uh, too negative about people that think a bit differently to us or even about our own uh, complex uh, range of sources of inspiration. The Christian boa constrictor, if you like, can can gobble up a lot of things. Uh, It can gobble up giant pigs (laughs) and swallow them whole. Uh, And in the process, incorporate them into itself. And as long as the Christian soul remains and isn't compromised, uh, then what it brings into the, the Christian body, it manages to, to to purify and purge and get the best out of it. So we've we learnt from the Romans, we learnt from the Greeks, we learnt from the Jews, we learnt from the Vikings, we learnt from the the the, the New World when we came to the New World uh, and and beyond. Uh, in each culture we've encountered, there's been some good things. So uh, in this culture we're in, there are some good things to appreciate as well as some things to be critical of and uh, to question. Uh, we begin with ourselves and each of us needs some some scrutiny and, and purification uh, of our own motives and our own thinking, of our own souls. Uh, uh, as if we're going to evangelise the world, we have to recognise the world we're going to is complex and we are complex ourselves. Uh, but let's not imagine we're uniquely cursed, that this is the terrible time in history and every other time has been good. We've been through terrible times. We've been through the persecution in ancient Rome where there was an all-out effort to totally exterminate the Christians. We've been through times of terrible corruption in the church uh, and uh, times of terrible division, like the Reformation where where Christendom turned on each other, Uh, times of great danger when we're at risk of being overrun by the the Moors and uh, Christianity being possibly again exterminated. We think of under, under the French Revolution and Napoleon, the period where they closed all the religious houses, uh, forced the priests to marry, uh, closed the, the Catholic schools, uh, people said it was doomed. Every time that's happened, just around the corner, there's been an enormous renewal coming. And no one could have guessed it at the time. But no, uh, the worst persecution of ancient Rome was under Diocletian. Only 10 years later, Constantine was the emperor and... Christians were freed, and in fact, pretty soon it was a Christian empire. Uh, in the Middle Ages, with the, all the, the, the corruption and the dualism, just around the corner was the invention of the friars and the universities and a, a wonderful uh, medieval Christian culture uh, and great saints, preacher saints. Or in the Reformation, just around the corner after all that division, were great new religious orders and saints like the Jesuits, missionary orders that took the faith to the new world. Uh, or at the French Revolution and Napoleonic period, you had, again, in the, such a flowering in, in France itself and beyond in the 
in the 19th century of new religious orders and great saints, the Curé of Ars, we think of the orders at the Marists that, that took the faith to the my part of the world, to the Pacific. Uh, the Congregation of Holy Cross. The Holy Cross Congregation <laughs> here. Uh, they've got the, this university and others going. Uh, so very often in history, things have seemed bleak and Christianity, people have said, oh, it's over and God is dead and Christianity is doomed. And just around the corner, there have been new saints, new religious movements, new inspiration, uh, new new missions for the church. And I think if if we're feeling bleak like some of them did in the Napoleonic period or in the Reformation or in the Diocletian persecution, uh, let's maintain our hope that God may have a great surprise in store for us and something very beautiful, some new mission ahead uh, there are many signs of those green shoots already. You look at some of the great things happening with new religious movements, new ecclesial movements, new religious orders, new ministries uh, in the universities and in other places, young people full of good ideals and, and, and uh, working for one mission or another. Uh, there are already little green shoots of, of something new happening and so we shouldn't lose our hope. Well, that is a positive and hopeful message, and I'm grateful that you shared it with us. Your Grace, Archbishop Fisher, thank you so much for coming to be with us, and thank you for giving the lecture that we will hear a little later today on Newman and the religion of the future and the future of the Academy, in which I'm sure you'll issue a few more challenges. I'll do my best, and I look forward to seeing some of you at the lecture, and you can probably hear it recorded somewhere else afterwards. God bless you all. Great to speak to you. Thank you to His Grace Archbishop Fisher. In the show notes, you will find a link to his presentation at Notre Dame on Newman and the Religion of the Future and the Future of the Academy, as well as to his Erasmus lecture that he delivered for First Things. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. Good decisions.